This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. I, I hope this suit and this appearance are not off-putting. I am, I am trying to keep this informal, and I hope that you all will feel free to, to interject questions as I go along, if there's something that's unclear, something you want to know more about. Uh, you know, one of the things that's a bit of a challenge is coming from a lot professor perspective and being used to speaking to law students, I'm going to try to make this, uh, you know, sort of interesting and comprehensible to everybody as I try to do writing for Slate, right? So I'm not writing for a, you know, legal audience. I'm trying to, you know, sort of do it in a way that I hope is comprehensible and fun for all. And so what I'm going to do in just the next few minutes, because I want to leave most of the time for our panel discussion is just to give you sort of a background on what's been going on with marriage equality in Pennsylvania, and then to kind of situate that uh, uh, nationally. And so I call this an update on what's been happening, a prediction of what's going to happen, and I hope most importantly, a conversation. All right. So uh, this will be about a two-second history lesson back in the early 1970s. People think of marriage equality and same-sex marriage as being a very recent phenomenon. But here are two gentlemen in the 1970s who applied for a marriage license in Minnesota. I think you can guess the result. They didn't prevail. They went all the way to the Supreme Court of Minnesota and uh, lost their case. Uh, and in fact, the guy on the left with the distinctly 70s hairstyle uh, was subsequently fired from his job as a librarian of the state. And it shows you that people who were doing these things back then were quite courageous, they were really pioneers, they took tremendous personal risk to put themselves out there. And this was before you had advocacy groups kind of shepherding these cases along. These were people kind of in a do-it-yourself mode. That's really sort of what they were about. Uh, they appealed to the US Supreme Court, which basically gave them the legal equivalent of a backhand, right, <laughs> saying, uh, they didn't even uh, want to look at the uh, case. They said there was not even a substantial federal question there. All right. So that's in the early 1970s. Um, and that's going to help things stay for a very long time. In the 90s, the scary pineapple out of Hawaii came along, and the Hawaii Supreme Court looked like they were about to uh, sanction uh, same-sex marriages in that state. And this created a bit of a panic in Congress. All right. So Congress was afraid that, like pineapple, same-sex marriages would become either the principal or the second export of Hawaii, and would infect all the other 49 states. And that was the concern, right? So that was 1993. In 1996, looking for a wedge issue to drive against President Clinton, there was introduced into Congress and overwhelmingly passed the Defense of Marriage Act. And the Defense of Marriage Act really is the, the progenitor or a big part of the reason why we're here today talking about what's going on with same-sex marriages. And the Defense of Marriage Act, again, federal law, has two major components, all right? Section 2, which was the part that was enacted in direct response to what was happening in Hawaii. And what Section 2 says is, in layman's terms, if you are in another state, and that state doesn't want to recognize your marriage from Hawaii, or whatever um, uh, other state right, might enact same-sex marriages, like Massachusetts then did in 2003, became the first state to do that. 
That state doesn't have to recognize your marriage. That's what Section 2 says. And that was in direct response to what was going on in Hawaii. The more interesting section for our purposes, though, is Section 3. And Section 3 did something quite unusual and some would say unprecedented. And what Section 3 did was to define marriage for federal purposes. You might say, well, why is that unusual, right? That's unusual because typically marriage is defined by the states. The states set the terms under which people can marry. So to give you some, some examples, different states have different ages, right? So in some states you can marry, believe it or not, when you're 14, right? In other states they have possibly more sensible restrictions like 16, 18, or so on, right? Um, so there are those kinds of uh, differences. Some states say first cousins can marry, some say they can't, right? Those are a couple of examples. Older examples, more controversial obviously until the Supreme Court put an end to it, some states allowed interracial marriages, some states, some states didn't until the Supreme Court in 1967 said that all states had to uh, permit uh, interracial marriages. So the Defense of Marriage Act says for federal purposes, okay, in figuring out the meaning of any act of Congress, the word marriage means only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife, and spouse basically means the same thing. Well, why does that matter? A lot of the benefits, I would say most of the benefits that inure to a married couple, right, come from federal law, okay? So the right to file a joint tax return at the federal level, a huge benefit for some couples, some couples there's a marriage penalty, but for others it's a huge benefit, right? Not available to same-sex couples. So what that means is even if you were married in Massachusetts, you were not married for federal purposes. That's what the Defense of Marriage Act, Section 3, said, okay? And it's important to recognize that we've come a long way since then. So in 1996, you know that guy, right? President Clinton said at that time, I remain opposed to same-sex marriage. So he signed the Defense of Marriage Act, right? Congress passed it, he had to sign it. By the way, even if he vetoed it, they would have passed it anyway. They had basically three quarters of Congress willing to, uh, to enact this, but he signed it. All right. 2011, for a few reasons, one is he's no longer in office, but there's been a huge sort of social, legal, cultural evolution in people's ideas about same-sex marriages. He then changes his tune, he's a New Yorker now, and says, I believe New York's welcome, it must include marriage equality. Okay, so this gives you an example of, of how things have changed. And uh, keep in mind that the Defense of Marriage Act didn't tell states they couldn't uh, allow same-sex marriages. In fact, Massachusetts did just a few years later. Vermont did something called the Civil <laughs> Union, which was a clever compromise. At the time, I thought it was bad and a cop-out. Retrospect, I think it was quite clever, all right? Gave people time to get used to the idea without calling it marriage. It was the same thing without the name, right? People saw that the sky didn't collapse and fall in and only three horsemen in the apocalypse showed up and therefore it was, it was uh, you could move to the next step. So uh, what you have is this kind of evolution in two different streams. So in some states, the more liberal states in New England and a few other places, 
Um, you have states moving to marriage equality, but in the majority of states, you had states enacting their own, what they call mini domas, mini defensive marriage acts, that basically put in state constitutions the same prohibition that the Defensive Marriage Act put in federal law. Okay? And Pennsylvania was one such state. Now, I should say, Pennsylvania is a little bit of a different story because it's one of the few states where there's a law against same sex marriages, but not a state constitutional amendment. Okay? So if the Pennsylvania legislature wanted to, they could tomorrow repeal that law and allow same-sex couples to marry. They can't do that in most of the other states that have prohibitions. They'd have to re-amend their constitutions. Okay? Important distinction to a law professor. But I think it's important to anybody. All right. This, I, I think, is a relevant graphic, and it'll be even more relevant if you could actually read it. But uh, this is sort of a timeline of the polls that have been uh, put out there by the Washington Post and ABC News. And they start back in 2003. And if you can just discern the two different lines up there, red, stop, green, go, all right? So back in 2003, you had 55% opposed to same-sex marriages in the poll, and only 37% in favor. And the last poll just came out within the last few weeks, all right, now has basically more than reverse that, okay? So there was a little period in the middle where the two sides were kind of vying for uh, supremacy, and then by 2014, you've got almost 60% of people supporting same-sex marriages and only 34% opposing them. It is a huge tidal shift. And if you, if, you, if you drill down into the numbers, into the demographics of it, it's even more astonishing, all right? More than party affiliation, right? The biggest predictor of whether someone is going to be in favor of same-sex marriages or against it is simply age. The, the younger the group of people, the likelier they are to be in favor. And for people, like the most of the people in this room, we're talking 70-plus percent in favor of same-sex marriages. And it goes down. But at this point, I believe, even people 65 and over I think this is true. By now, a narrow majority still supports it, all right? But, you know, for a very, I mean, no matter where the poll is, whether uh, overall support is down here or up here, it's always been strictly determined by, by age in terms of percentage um, supporting or opposing. So that's what's going on in terms of culturally and socially. The thing that's going on legally that I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about but not long, is the Windsor case. And there's Edie Windsor. It was delightful. There was a great uh, profile of her in The New Yorker about two months ago, which I really recommend. Um, and so she is, she and her wife, all right, they're married in Canada. There's initially some squabble about, because they were married before New York recognized their marriages, but it was pretty well conceded that New York recognized their marriages, so for New York's purposes, they were married. But not for federal purposes, because of the Defense of Marriage Act. Her partner of, I don't know, a million years, right, and her spouse of just a couple of years then dies, the aspire. Edie Windsor is stuck with an estate tax bill of $363,000, okay? 
Had she been, if she's legally married, right, in New York State, had she been married to a man, her tax bill would have been, let me figure this out, zero. All right? <laughs> so zero would have been the bill because there's an exemption, right? When it's your spouse who dies, you don't pay the estate tax. The estate tax doesn't get paid until the second spouse dies. Okay? So she, she is on the hook for $363,000. She says, you know, this, this doesn't strike her as fair. She goes into one of the advocacy organizations and says, will you take my case? They agree to take it. And there's a great quote from her. Um, and her case, a lot of these, these cases that are, that are challenging the Defense of Marriage Act on constitutional grounds are percolating up through the courts. This is the one that the US Supreme Court cherry picks out of the group and decides it's going to hear. Supreme Court doesn't have to hear any of these cases but there were starting to be conflicting decisions in various federal courts. The Supreme Court really felt like it had to jump in and do something to resolve the conflict. They take the case, it goes all the way to the US Supreme Court, and uh, last June, at the end of June, the very last day of the term, the Supreme Court issues its decision in United States versus Windsor, and they strike down Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act. Remember, Section 3 is the section that says your marriage doesn't count for federal purposes. That's the only section that was challenged. You can do this, right? You don't have to challenge a whole statute. You can surgically separate out the part of the statute you think is constitutionally objectionable, and you can, you can challenge that. That's what she did. Five to four decision, she prevails. And Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority, says, you know, there's something weird about the Defense of Marriage Act, all right? The feds pretty much leave the states alone to decide for themselves what marriage is, all right? And I'm not deciding this on the grounds that the feds exceeded their authority, but it does make us suspicious that they reached into state law and defined <coughs> marriage, right? Really makes us think that there was something going on here that really belies the justifications that, that Congress gave at the time the Defense of Marriage Act was put into place. And what he says is this really was born of animus toward same-sex couples. And he said that the, that the federal law interfered with the decisions of the sovereign states to allow same-sex marriages and to confer on couples, quote, a dignity and status of immense import. All right? Now keep in mind, all Windsor does by its terms, is declare one particular section of one federal law to be unconstitutional, right? It doesn't say that any state has to recognize same-sex marriages. It doesn't say that. Right? And in fact, Justice Kennedy talks a lot about how unprecedented it was for the federal government, right, to disrespect the state. So you might say, well, if it's, if it's at the state level where those decisions get made, then right, Windsor has no application there. You might think so. It's turned out exactly the opposite. Right? The decision, even though it really is about, on its, on its legal technical terms, even though it's really just about the Defense of Marriage Act, Section 3, it's written in such broad and sweeping language that it's very clear that justice to me and to anybody reading the decision, it's pretty clear that he was setting the table for a broader decision. 
talking consistently about the equality and dignity of same-sex couples. There's a dissent by Justice Scalia where he says, now we just have to wait for the other shoe to drop. The majority has basically uh, told us that it's ready to grant same-sex marriages. And what he does is say, you know, you could use the language in this decision. You just change federal government to states, and this would apply equally well. Since Windsor, which again, not even a year has gone by, right? This was last summer. I was driving through Portugal. Not that I'm such a jet setter. This is like the first time I was out of the country. And I said to the person from work, if this comes down, you have to call me. So I'm trying to get cell phone reception out of the car in Portugal. And she says, they struck it down. Since then, more than 30 judges have agreed that the state law bans of same-sex marriages violate the federal constitution. Okay? So you have challenges in almost every state that still has a constitutional ban on same-sex marriages. And it's still over half the states, by the way. So you think this battle is won if you're an advocate of same-sex marriage. Uh, that's, what you, that's sort of the popular perception. But as a practical matter, all right, there are still over half the states that have either a statute like Pennsylvania or much more commonly a constitutional amendment. Okay? And these amendments bar same-sex marriages. Courts in, I don't know, something like 15 states at this point, right, it's being litigated, all of the decisions, <laughs> 17 courts, have said that the LGBT plaintiffs prevail. Most of these are marriage cases, but not all of them. There are a few cases on other, on other issues where the court has also relied on the sweeping statements about the dignity and status of LGBT people and couples. But most of these are marriage cases, okay? So it looks pretty clear, and the more of these decisions there are, the harder it is for a judge on the other side to disregard all of that. There's a tremendous amount of ballast, a tremendous amount of weight that now attaches to these, uh, these decisions. And what they basically have said is, you know, there's no reason in the logic and the language of Windsor to limit the holding to federal law. That same-sex couple's dignity is implicated in all of these cases, and the state has no real counter-argument. Okay? And the longer these cases have gone on, the arguments against same-sex marriages have had less and less traction in courts. That's an interesting case that wrapped up last week in Michigan where they actually had a trial. Most of these cases have been decided on summary judgment, on the papers without having a trial. Michigan, there was a trial, and a lot of it was about whether same-sex marriages were harmful to children. And that was sort of a battle of the experts on that issue. Uh, and a decision should be forthcoming soon. Okay, so I finally get to the ostensible topic for the day, which is where are we in Pennsylvania. And I've done a lot of talking, writing, speaking about Pennsylvania because it certainly is the most interesting of the states just in terms of where we are. And there are these four cases that are, are worth, I don't know, a minute and 30 seconds each so I don't, so I, I leave plenty of time for other panelists. So uh, Whitewood against Wolf was filed last summer. This is what I would call the sort of standard issue case. This case 
filed in the Middle District of Pennsylvania, State Capitol in Harrisburg, basically says that the Pennsylvania law that doesn't recognize same-sex marriages violates the federal constitution, the federal guarantee of equal protection under the law and due process of law. Right? Due process basically in the sense of fundamental right to marry that should attach to gay, lesbian couples as well as straight couples. That's why we're against Wolf. That case is scheduled to go to trial in June in Harrisburg. If I had to guess, I would say there's a pretty good chance the court will resolve the case once the summary judgment, which is basically the summary judgment says, you don't need to have a trial. The issues are clear. You can just decide this on the papers. My guess is it'll be decided in summary judgment, but we could have a trial in June. Palladino against Corbett, one of our panelists, is uh, the other half of the Palladino couple, right? Isabel Barker, right? Uh, they are the only couple in this suit. This is a much more surgical attack. This is also in federal court. It's in federal court here in, not quite here, next door in Philadelphia, right? And this challenges only the part of the Pennsylvania law that doesn't recognize same-sex marriages from other states. It's all it challenges. So it doesn't say Pennsylvania, you have to issue your own same-sex uh, marriage licenses, but you have to recognize our marriage from Massachusetts, which was valid when entered into in that state in 2005. And during the, the kind of uh, back and forth part of the conversation, I'll talk a little bit more with Isabel about her, about her case. Haynes against Pennsylvania Health Department. This is the case of Bruce Haynes in Montgomery County, who was giving out marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Uh, he was ordered to cease and desist. He's appealing to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. I don't think he's got a very strong case because what because the court is not going to address the constitutionality. I don't think they will. The constitutionality, the underlying prohibition against same-sex marriages. They're going to look at what the limits of his authority are under existing state law. The interesting offshoot of that is Ballant against Corbett. Ballant against Corbett is a case where the folks that got marriage licenses, there was a window of time where the marriage licenses were being given out in Montgomery County. Some people got marriage licenses, and some people, like one of our panelists, Ken Oakes, had his marriage solemnized. He's married, but are those licenses valid? Clear. Not legally clear. Ken is not a plaintiff on that case, but there is a raft of plaintiffs who have joined in sort of a class to say our marriages should be recognized under Pennsylvania law. <clears throat> the only way to do that is to declare that the State Defense of Marriage Act is unconstitutional. The one interesting thing I'll add to that, and this is Zoe for Law Geeks, but maybe you'll find it interesting anyway, is that. In any other state, except for like Indiana and a couple of others, where the prohibition on same-sex marriages is in the state constitution, right, then the only trump card is the federal constitution. And that's pretty much why those first two cases have been brought in federal court under the U.S. Constitution. Ballot against Corbin, one of the arguments is that the Pennsylvania law prohibiting same-sex marriages violates the Pennsylvania state constitution. So you could have a situation, if that case got resolved early, that the, that the statute would be declared unconstitutional under Pennsylvania law, and we wouldn't get to the federal claims, but the effect would be 
that all of the other people would win because the Pennsylvania Supreme Court would have struck down the state law under the Pennsylvania Constitution. Complicated, but possible. Okay, where are we legally today? And again, this is just sort of a summary. Full marriage equality has now come to 17 states plus DC. There are still four states which have the civil union domestic partnership animals which purport to give all the rights, benefits, and obligations of marriage, except for the name. Okay, we still have four such states, Nevada, Colorado, Oregon, and a state I'll probably remember in a minute. Um, and, but there are still more than half the states that don't have relationship recognition. Those are the cases that are moving through the courts, and I, I'm not at all confident that I'll be able to click on this, but you see how that's in blue? That's supposed to indicate, uh, that's not going to work. I was going to show you, if you go to freedomtomarry.org, you will see a list of all the cases being litigated. I just wanted to show you that because it's, it's dramatic. I mean, basically, in almost every state where there's still a ban on same-sex marriages, you've got litigation challenging it. And some of these are now at the federal appellate court level. It's only going to be a matter of, I would think, two years, three at the absolute most, before the Supreme Court is going to have to consider that issue again. Okay, so what's next? This is my last slide for those of you scoring at home, all right? So the first thing I want to say is I would be astonished if this, this drama played out in any other way but that marriage equality is coming to all 50 states and the District of Columbia, it's already there, within the next few years. It would be astonishing to me if that wasn't what happens. I think when the Supreme Court takes the case again, there's so much momentum in that direction, and they bought themselves a little time to get people used to the idea, but I think that's where we're going. What I think is interesting, and we can talk more about this in the question and answer if we have any time, is where I think the next battle is going to be fought. In fact, it's already being fought before victory has even been achieved on marriage equality. And this is the, the right or not, or not right of people to opt out. Let me explain what I mean. Okay? Same-sex couple getting married, they call up a photographer or go into a photography studio and say, will you please take pictures of our wedding? And they say, no. Right. Now, in some states, a majority of states, there is no legal protection under anti-discrimination laws in places of public accommodation based on sexual orientation. So what that says is they can already do this. They can already say no. If state, believe it or not, state doesn't have an anti-discrimination law, right? Or anyone could walk into a bakery, and if you're wearing a rainbow flag and they think you're gay, they don't have to serve you. And there's nothing in the law, there is in Philadelphia, but there's nothing in the law in Pennsylvania, there's nothing in federal law that protects on the basis of sexual orientation. There are plenty of states, though, that have anti-discrimination laws, right? So in New Mexico, where the photography case took place, even though there was no same-sex marriage in Pennsylvania, in New Mexico at the time, Right? You couldn't discriminate based on sexual orientation. A couple says, you just did. You wouldn't take our pictures. It goes all the way to the New Mexico Supreme Court. The New Mexico Supreme Court says, 
The anti-discrimination law trumps your religious freedom. This is a neutral law. It applies to everybody. You have your place open for business. It's got to be open to everyone. End of story. They now have a petition with the United States Supreme Court to consider the case. Or what about a county clerk whose religious beliefs say, I don't want to issue that license. I don't want to write out that license. You might say, well, you're a state employee. That's your job. Right? But they might say, they might push for a law that says, if you have a strong religious exemption, they are pushing for these laws. That person can step aside and let somebody else in the office issue the marriage license. These are the battles that are going to be fought in the next forever, but at least the next five to 10 years. Right? And I think they're very interesting because they bring up two very important values, right? Equality. On the, one hand, on the one hand, and dignity of the same-sex couple. On the other hand, religious liberty. And in some cases, like the photography case, there are even these arguments about freedom of expression, that photography is an expressive medium, and that people should get to make choices about how they express their artistic interests. So I'll, I will stop, and Father Calderon will now speak, I think, right? And then we'll have, a, we'll have our panel discussion. Okay. So thank you. You didn't use a mic. No. Okay. I just yelled. Um, <laughs> when I first heard about the panel, and I said it's uh, same-sex marriage, and you want the church's uh, teaching. I said, well, there isn't any, so that's the end. So then, they, uh, then I was asked, well, why don't you say something about pastoral approach? So within the church, there's a whole lot of teachings. There's what we have in the creed, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ, and Mary, the Trinity. And then the second most important teaching in the church is you must follow your conscience. It's in your conscience that you're made in God's image and likeness. So that's a church teaching. Then all the tertiary teachings have to do with moral issues. And a, a dogma is different from a teaching. That's another thing. If you go online and try to figure that out, even the people that have written articles and books on dogma doctrine and teaching aren't in agreement exactly. Each person has their own definition, it seems. But the, the idea comes out again that there's a hierarchy and some things are more important than others. So if the church teaches you shouldn't eat meat on Friday in Lent, yeah, that's a teaching. The church teaches Jesus is human and divine, that's a teaching too. Certainly wouldn't be considered equal. So when it, when it comes uh, to um, deal with all our moral issues, um, we have to follow our conscience based on the dogma that we believe if we're gonna be overt members of this organization that believes in that dogma. But the tertiary teachings are that, they're tertiary. Now, along the way, we're helped. We're given uh, theologians, and uh, then the official teachers of the institution are the bishops or the hierarchy. So we're supposed to listen to them to help us uh, forming our conscience. So we, it's not just a wishy-washy, do whatever you want, but we have a serious thought. And if we believe truly in our hearts, because God lives in our hearts, not far, far away, uh, God lives where our conscience speaks to us, and if we deal with that, we know when we're being honest with ourselves. So if we say, in this situation, um, I believe the God who dwells within me agrees with who I am and what I am, and indeed this God created me the way I am, and I have to respond to who I am and be authentic and be real, then you have to do that. 
even if the official teaching over here in one of the lists says it looks like that's wrong because the official teachings can't cover everything. Even in the uh, traditional theology, there were a couple of, uh, I guess I would call them loopholes. <clears throat> St. Thomas Aquinas had one. He had a Greek word called epikaia, and it meant um, if the lawgiver, the person who made the law, knew about this particular case right here, the lawgiver would say, that doesn't count because that's not what I made the law for. So if you make the lawgiver God, and if you, uh, you know, cooperate with God through your conscience, then you would say, well, truly in my conscience, if I'm being authentic and real to myself, is this really honest or is it not? And you make a judgment. If I need help in making that judgment, I go to resources if I feel I need other resources until I feel satisfied with the resources I have that have built up my conscience. Um, so th there was the other one. Oh, uh, it wasn't that ancient, but uh, one of the theologians I studied under his uh, book, uh, he talked about the, um, it's Bernard Herring, I'm trying to think of, fundamental option. Uh, fundamentally, people are opted one way or the other, <coughs> for the good or for the bad. So in talking about what we used to call mortal sin and venial sin, what's a mortal sin? Well, almost everything was a mortal sin when I was a kid because you would read the catechism and if you did that's moral, that's moral. Um, but then when I got to graduate school, we studied this fundamental <coughs> option. Uh, I was very, I could throw the catechism away. It was, uh, you know, if you're basically doing good and trying to do good and trying to do the best with your life that you can, then uh, this theologian is saying that's a good thing. And you're probably moving more in the positive direction towards God. And then not so long ago, I heard a quote in the news from Francis, the Pope, saying, who am I to judge? You know, if, if people are going fundamentally in the right option uh, to do the good, to do the honesty within themselves, who am I to judge? So even though that was taught to me uh, 40 years ago, um, Francis is right there with it today. So the church, to me, feels like today it's opened up a little bit the way it was 40 years ago with the spirit and the energy of what we call the Vatican Council. For too many years, too many people within the institution were trying to put it back. And I think a lot of the issues have to do not with sexuality, but with power. And I think the institution wants to hold power, control people, uh, and that's wrong. We all know that in our conscience. God tells us that. So that's the backdrop. So when we, we deal with ourselves or with others that are struggling to be authentic, real people, <coughs> that's, uh, that's what we do. We support them in that, in that journey. And the most recent letter from uh, Francis was uh, saying that. Be with people. Look at all the good that they're doing and don't look for the things that are negative. When teaching the gospel, when teaching about the God of goodness and love, teach that. Teach the mercy, teach the forgiveness, um, and let the other things fall into place. In other words, put things into perspective. You know, if things are wrong, we know they're wrong. And we know in our hearts they're wrong, we know in our conscience. So that, that's a, essentially the way I would approach any moral issue. But if, anybody, if you want to apply it to marriage or anything, that's the way I would do it. Any questions? Thanks.
that's 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 great. Yeah, thank you. It, it's it's uh, you know it's interesting. Sometimes I think whatever the religion or whatever the, the political group, there's a there's an assumption that that everyone is you know sort of coming from the same place within that group or speaking from the same position, and, and obviously that's not true. And this is an interesting perspective on on one view of Catholic doctrine. Um, what I'd like to do now is to do a little bit of an interview style question and answer. And as I do this, and after that, of course, we'll open it up for questions you know, to the audience. But even during this, this period, during this uh, segment, if people have questions as we go along, I'm sure our panelists and I would, would like to hear them. There may be questions I'm not asking, not thinking of, which is likely since I have no notes. Um, I, did, I did create some, but I thought it would be uh, better if we did this less formally. So I'd like to start with you, Isabel. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your marriage and coming here to Pennsylvania and some of the difficulties that you faced to sort of give us a backdrop for where you are in this litigation to which you're a plaintiff. Sure, sure. So thanks. Um, first of all, I just want to say thanks to all of you for for coming, and um, you probably appre really appreciate your um, your sort of interest in in this subject. Um, so, Cara Palladino of the Palladino v. Corbett is um, my partner. Uh, we've been together for 16 years, and um, in that time, we have um, lived a you know fully committed um, relationship with one another. <coughs> we have built a life together. Um, we've sort of done the whole process of developing careers, figuring out job stuff, figuring out where we were going to live, figuring out um, different types of, um, you know, dealing with graduate school and so forth. Um, and um, we um, uh, lived in Massachusetts from 2004 to 2005, and in that time, we'd already been together for a number <laughs> of years, and marriage had become legal, same-sex marriage had become legal in Massachusetts. So we wanted to, to jump on the opportunity to sort of solidify our, our relationship um, and, and gain all of the, the um, benefits that you get with that. Um, in particular, at that point, I was able to get onto, my, uh, onto Kara's health insurance, which was a great boon. Um, and so that was, again, sort of one, one material um, benefit of, of being married to, to being legally married to Kara at that point. Um, we, I got a, um, a job at Bryn Mawr College in 2005 which is why we ended up relocating to, to Pennsylvania. And um, at that time, um, we sort of realized that we were going to be essentially stripped of the, our, our, the legal nature of our relationship. And so at various times, um, again, being in Pennsylvania, we um, had to, even though we had this marriage license that is the exact same piece of paper that a heterosexual married couple would have, um, that piece of paper basically carried zero weight in Pennsylvania. So um, at one point, we were, um, again, dealing with health insurance in terms of employer-based benefits and needing to get access for, for the other um, partner. And um, our employer could not, or at this point, it was, it was CARE's employer at the time, could not accept, when I was trying to get onto her health insurance, wouldn't accept our marriage license as proof of our relationship. And so we had to sort of step backwards and um, register as domestic partners in Philadelphia and um, for the purposes of the, the um, getting access to her health insurance. And so, um, you know, since then, I mean, we are 
really boring, you know. Like we have a very sort of boring domestic life, as I said. You know, we've we've figured out our career stuff together. We, you know, bought a house together. We have a son. We just rescued a dog a couple months ago. So that's like the big event in our life is like who's going to walk the dog at six o'clock when it's icy and freezing cold and everything. So we have a really boring life, and um, but but it's 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 a life that um, that a lot of people who are straight and married can assume that they have all of these um, protections associated with. And we've been really lucky in that we haven't actually, um, you know, neither of us has been in the hospital and we haven't had to come up against the, um, the experience of being denied access to the other because of we don't have legal recognition. Um, I think the place where it's been sort of in addition to the health insurance, you know, frustration with our marriage certificate not being recognized or you know not being treated equally um, when um, I uh, had my son had our son uh, five years ago we had to go through a whole process of adoption which was a very lengthy and very costly process um, and just to, to again legally cement Kara's right to be the legal parent of our son who again for all intents and purposes um, you know, I, I think about this a lot. We are very close with our extended families, and um, our families view us as exactly like everybody else in terms of cousins and aunts and uncles and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, we're very fortunate. We work for an employer who absolutely recognizes us as essentially a married couple. Our neighbors, our, um, the teachers in um, our son's school, really all of our communities recognize us as living the life of a married couple. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's really been interesting to me to, again, have this marriage certificate from one state, but not have it mean anything in the state that we've lived in for um, almost nine years now. Thanks. Um, so I'll just go down the row, and I think I'd like to ask uh, Jessica sort of a different kind of a question, which is, um, you know, from your perspective, being our our representative of the of the twenty somethings, I guess. Uh, do you see this as as being as big of an issue for for people that you know and and uh, you know people you you sort of grew up with? Is this something that that is uh, discussed, or is this you know as a big issue, or is this just something that's like can we please move on? I mean, how does it how does it feel to you about the whole marriage issue? Um, I know legally you have no rights. Yeah. But, <laughs> But just in terms of the conversation about sort of gay relationships and gay identity and those sorts of issues, I'm just, I'm just wondering. Yeah. If, so uh, demographics kind of reflect your reality. It's sort of a mixed bag. On the one side, I have a lot of friends who are in committed relationships. I myself am in a committed relationship, um, and there's always this these questions that come up, like, should we want to get married? Should we want to buy a home together? any of that stuff, we have to jump through all of these extra hurdles to do the same things that everyone else sort of takes for granted. So I think that constant awareness of those types of things um, certainly makes it an issue uh, amongst sort of people in, in my generation, in my age group. Uh, so for instance, uh, my fiance and I now are looking at wedding venues. And just the fact that every time we approach a wedding venue, we have to mention the fact that we're a same-sex couple just so we don't show up the next day. And they're like, ooh, we, we actually won't deal with you. Uh, so we have to come out every single time. We want to deal with a different person. Uh, so it is very much an issue on that front. Um, 
the other mm -hmm. side where it's sort of a slightly different issue is I'm also very much involved in, in different queer communities. And for a lot of those communities, they're kind of fed up with the marriage thing. They're like, this is, it's a good thing. We should have that legal right, but marriage in its in itself is a problematic institution. Uh, it has, you know, hegemonic masculinities built into it. It has like all these fancy scholarly words that basically says it's sexist, it involves power. Um, it's not the only thing we should be fighting for. And at the same time, by focusing on that debate, you lose conversations about queer communities of color, transgendered communities, all of these other plethora of issues. Um, not to mention the fact that a lot of these rights shouldn't necessarily be tied to marriage. If you are in a committed relationship and you don't want to get married, why should you not get health insurance with your partner who you've been with for a long time? Um, so I sort of see it from two sides. Uh, on one side, we totally kind of need it. Um, on the other side, I, I also see the more critical perspective of it in the groups who are just very much, we need to talk about other stuff than just marriage. Yeah, so I want to follow up if I could with a question, because I've done some writing thinking about civil unions, and in a few states, like Illinois, they actually have civil unions for opposite-sex couples as well as same-sex couples. And I interviewed some of the couples as to why they would choose civil unions, and there are issues with federal versus state law that I won't get into, but, they, but what was more interesting to me was kind of the psychology behind their decision. Mm -hmm. And they said some of the same things you're saying about sort of the, the patriarchy and the history of marriage not exactly being welcoming to women or not being good for women in a lot of ways um, and feeling like they wanted to be part of some new by by design gender neutral institution and this kind of opens up a broader discussion about what kinds of relationships should the state be recognizing and more to the point should the state be supporting right because there are all different kinds of people who might need state support in different ways who aren't getting it, right? You can imagine people that are caring for you know, elderly parents and the support isn't there. That the state doesn't really support that in important ways besides very limited family medical leave act sort of stuff, right? So, so I'm sort of wondering if there were a civil union option um, and it conferred all of the same rights and benefits would that be something that would be more appealing to you um, uh, potentially? And you know, is that something you've thought about? Yeah, I, I've thought about it at length. And for me personally, I, I love places that actually have it available to both same-sex and opposite-sex couples or whatever yeah. gender sex configuration you have. Right. By all means, that's, that's awesome because I know a lot of straight couples who have those same um, objections, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, I would be entirely for that. My fiance, on the other hand, would never go for it. Uh, and I'm more than happy to enter marriage because I know that that's, she, she was a typical little girl who grew up with those ideas and uh -huh. she wants the big wedding and like all that stuff. So she's very much into that. I'm more than happy to put politics aside uh -huh. um, and my own views on that. Um, good partner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Smart she, partner. Yeah, yeah, because I'm, I'm worried she's recording me in here, so. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a great option. Um, but for me, at the end of the day, it's it's a word, whether it's marriage or civil union. It's ultimately how we construct that relationship versus how a state titles it. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Ken, um, you were one of the people that 
obtained a marriage license from Montgomery County um, and, and then had it solemnized. Uh, we were talking before the session at, at Christ Church, uh, right, which is uh, right. in, in Old City. In Old City. I've been there a few times. Uh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, right? Um, and I guess I'm wondering a couple of things. One, if you care to disclose why you decided not to join the litigation, other than the fact that litigation is horrible, you know, for everybody involved usually, but also how you're thinking and feeling about your status. You're kind of in this nebulous zone. Does it affect your life in a day-to-day -day way? Well, um, first of all, I want to acknowledge my partner, Ed, right there. We still use the term partner. <laughs> uh, he's, he's the stately-looking one. Uh, <clears throat> we... Um, We've been together for many years, and we had dis, uh, we had decided that we did not want to get married until we didn't want to have a commitment service. We wanted to wait until we could get married. And uh, I have been active in the human rights campaign and other advocacy organizations, as well as the disability community, um, and so have a have a little bit of a. Um, social um, side to me that likes to push the envelope a bit. Um, and so when, when the, to get to the question of why we're not part of the, the class, when Mr. Haynes in Montgomery County started issuing licenses, and he did it, I don't even, to this day, I don't even know why he got up that morning and decided to do it, but God bless him. Um, but, uh, he started, and Ed was in France for a month, and I was on the West Coast for a month doing back-to-back -back conferences. And so we started emailing back and forth about, did we want to do this, and was it, was, you know, why would we do it? Would we do it because we really felt we were getting married, or would we do it as an act of sort of civil disobedience built on love? Mm -hmm. um, and so we kind of decided it was a little bit of both, and we understood that it really... Uh, wouldn't have any meaning until the whole thing played out, although it had meaning for us. So um, the, the reason that we're not part of the class is because we got our uh, license at the very tail end, and the class had been established prior to that. So we got our license, I think, like on the 22nd or 23rd of August. You have to wait three days in Pennsylvania. Um, we live in Philadelphia, so we waited our three days. Before we, but I, I want to back up for a second because before we got our license, I emailed um, the two priests at our Episcopal church, Christ Church downtown. Uh, and Christ Church is the oldest Episcopal church in the country. It's where members of the Const uh, Continental Congress went to worship, and it sort of is the revolution. Um, and so we knew that they would be excited about this, and they were. They were very excited. Um, so the, the rector was on vacation, but he said to the assistant rector, who happens to be a woman, do it. Go for it. Um, talk to the bishop first of the Episcopal Church, but go ahead and do it. And we had this very tight window because we knew that they were going to shut it down. Um, so... Uh, Kate Spellman, who is the, who is the, uh, the priest that did it, called the Episcopal Bishop. He basically stopped her right in the middle of her conversation, of her question, and said, 
don't ask me anything that you don't want the answer to. And so basically he was saying to her, I think it's great, do it. Just don't tell me about it because I have to tell you you can't do it. Um, so we uh, did it in the church garden on the 27th of August. Uh, there were only uh, uh, five of us present. Turned out to be six because the janitor wanted to participate. <laughs> um, and uh, we did it after five o'clock when the church was closed. We just, we wanted it to be very private because we knew that at some point we were going to have a big event in the church. Um, the biggest issue for us was, and I think what gets to your part of your question about how does it impact our lives today, it really doesn't because we're just as boring as you. Um, <laughs> And, and that's what I think is so funny about people who are, have so many concerns about gay people. Most gay people are really boring. Um, so, so I think this has been the great triumph of the uh, gay rights revolution is to, to be able take to say all this great, you know, exciting culture that existed in all kinds of little demimons and and to just and just to make it into one boring slurry of mediocrity. Garbage that, night that, is Thursday. So, so yeah. So I just want to add so one more thing. For us, right? I want to add one more thing that was really that, that I think was important way. to us to, uh, in our decision making. In 2012, the Episcopal Church came out with this blessing of same-sex marriages. The General Convention worked on it for a number of years, approved it, and our rector kept trying to get us to do this. And we kept pushing back and saying, no, we don't want to do it. It's not real. It's, it's a, you know, we, we can do the same thing by just standing in church and, and saying we love each other. We want, this is the Book of Common Prayer. If you're an Episcopalian, if you're a Catholic, you have the solar document. Um, but the Book of Common Prayer is, is our document. Uh, it's where all of our dogma is, uh, all of uh, our rights. And so the stipulation when we spoke to Kate and to Tim, who are the two priests, was that we did not want this, we wanted this. And immediately they said, it's this. They didn't argue with us. And so um, this is what we did. The cool part for us, uh, uh, just as Ed is an archivist, um, it, the Christchurch is 319 years old, and so we have this gigantic old book where everybody registers your marriage in this gigantic old book. And so we turn to page like 597 or whatever it is, and we filled out, you know, and we were put in this book where people going back hundreds of years have, have registered their marriage. And um, to, to us, that was the most important part. So we don't really see our lives any different because we still have to do the things that we did before we got married. But what we, we wanted to do was to make a statement to our church. We wanted to say to the vestry of the church and to the priests and to the members of Christ Church, this is something we need to do more of here. And we had overwhelming support. It was amazing. We also wanted to support Mr. Haynes in what he had done and show our support for the people who were already in the class, the 20 couples that were in the class. Um, there were 176 licenses issued. All but 56 couples got married. Um, and I don't, I don't know why that happened, but they didn't. They opted not to get married. Um, 
And uh, so we know that eventually we will win and uh, we'll be married um, automatically, I guess, that day. Um, That's not clear. Well, yeah. <laughs> but probably. 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 Hopefully, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe, probably. Um, it so really, It really depends, on, you know, slug eagle alert. It kind of depends on whether if they were invalid at the time, whether they'll serve retroactively validate <laughs> right. them, which I right. think they would. Right. But it's not clear. Right. So, so that's sort of our, our story. We, um, we too have, um, you know, family that, uh, you know, we're just, we take care of our parents. We, um, we babysit, we do all the things that, you know, we shovel snow for the old people in the neighborhood, we, even though I'm one of the old people. In the neighborhood. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think one of the things about, and I think you, you were, the two of you hit on this is that it, it's just being, being a person, just being a human. And, and that's why I said good job when you finish, because it's all about moving in the right direction and being a decent human being and being a part of your of society and, and uh, you know, doing the right thing and and uh, taking care of yourself and taking care of others. That's that's the key. And I've I've we have always been out and open and we we've, we've always just acted like we were have been together a hundred years. Um, so I, I am super excited, though, about this, and I'm more I'm really excited for for you because I think because you have a child, I think it makes it even more important mm -hmm. for you. Um, but there are over a thousand federal benefits that we will get uh, after we're legally married, um, and if we have to do it again, we'll do it again. Mm -hmm. You probably will. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that that Justice Kennedy wrote not, uh, or that he said, I should say, during the oral argument to one of the cases, the Proposition 8 case, which I didn't discuss, and the Defense of Marriage Act case, were basically heard on consecutive days, was he was wondering about the voices of the children of same-sex parents, because there's a lot of concern expressed about, you know, what will happen to children raised by same-sex couples, and he sort of turned it on his head and said, but what about what's happening to them now where they're in these families where their parents' legal uh, relationship isn't recognized? And it was clear from the context that he was speaking not about the legal rights, but about the kind of dignitary sort of insult that's visited on the children kind of derivatively when the parents' marriages yeah. are not recognized. And I think that's why a lot of people are confident that he will similarly provide the fifth vote for a more sweeping declaration of marriage. He's sort of the Thurgood Marshall of gay rights, which is weird because he's not progressive on almost any other issue. Certainly on women's issues, reproductive issues, not, 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 not so progressive. But on this particular issue, for whatever reason, um, he's, he's sort of staked out of territory. He's written all of the major gay rights decisions, and they're, they're striking in their breadth, I would say. Um, I could ask more questions of the panelists, but I think what I'd like to do is see if there are any questions from the audience, and then they can be to any of the panelists or to all of us or whatever. Anybody? If you don't, we'll just keep talking. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm really interested in the defendants of these cases. Um, I shouldn't know the answer to this, but I could understand Corbett being a defendant, but how did the Department of, um, what was it, the Department of um, Health yeah. become a defendant? Because they issue the marriage licenses. Uh, 
So, and in fact, I, I wrote a piece about this a while ago because in Massachusetts, which was the first state to allow same-sex marriages, it was uh, a Goodrich versus Department of Public Health. And it's interesting when you think about these cases from a public health and policy point of view. So the defendants are the ones that are refusing to issue the marriage licenses. Um, it could, and, it, and I, didn't, I did think maybe I could talk a little bit about the different defendants, uh, because I know in the, the Whitewood case, it was Corbett originally, but then he was withdrawn in favor of the Secretary of Health. That hasn't happened in your case, I don't no. think. No. So there are, there are all different ways and to Kathleen do it. Kane, and Kathleen Kane, who's the Attorney General, has refused to defend these laws, and that created quite a, a hubbub at the time. But since then, plenty of state attorney generals, including the new Attorney General in Virginia, have taken the same have taken the same uh, position that they think there's no principal defense. And keep in mind that the Obama administration refused to defend the Defense of Marriage Act, which is why there was this big issue about whether there was even standing to be in front of the Supreme Court, because they like to have real controversies before them. So that was a preliminary issue the court had to deal with before it got to what we call the merits of the case, kind of the meat of the case. Could I add something? You know, I think because we live in a metropolitan area, Many of us just think this is kind of like a non-issue, um, gay rights, and it's just, you know, we all, we all know gay people, we all know, you know. But I think the real heroes, at least for me, are the people who live in uh, Radford County, Pennsylvania, or Clarion, or in the middle of Ohio, or upstate New York someplace. and. They're the ones that I think we need, those of us who can be most vocal about this, we need to do <coughs> the, hard, the lifting so that those folks benefit from what we can do and feel safe in doing it. And I think that's probably why we see lots of these things around urban areas, because it's easy for us to do that. And especially those who work in education and other fields, we can we can be more out uh, with who we are. Yeah. But it's the people who I think are the, are the unsung heroes out there who are living quiet lives, maybe a little scared, maybe a little nervous, um, you know, maybe get beat up or have homophobic slurs thrown their way every once in a while. Um, those are the folks I think that we really do this for. And I, and, so, so for that, I think I'm most grateful. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's a, the book Sticks and Stones is a book about bullying by Emily Bazelon, and she talks about the case. She talks about three cases. She really kind of drills into the details. And one of the cases she spends a lot of time on is this case involving Jacob, who was from upstate New York, who was just bullied relentlessly. And he kind of insisted on living his life out loud. He was very queer identified, and he would he would dress in all kinds of flamboyant clothing, um, and he just refused to back down, and he suffered horribly. Uh, and there was eventually litigation, the school reached a settlement, policies changed, but that, in my view, takes a lot more courage than what any of us are doing, because you're in that crucible of high school, which, or I think it started in middle school, which isn't pleasant territory for a lot of people under any circumstances. And then to do something like this, uh, not every kid can do that, uh, even if they have the same 
core instincts. And so I think that's to be celebrated. The other point to make here is you're right about the geography mattering a great deal, because we've seen in Kansas and Idaho and Mississippi and Arizona these recent attempts to push through laws that some of them, the Arizona law that, that generated the most publicity was actually not the most extreme. Laws in Kansas and Idaho would have totally stacked the deck in favor of people not wanting to deal not only with same-sex couples, but even the way the law was written with gay or lesbian people under any circumstances, um, which, by the way, they don't even need to currently because there's no anti-discrimination protection. So right. it really shows the strength of the opposition is still really dug in in some parts of the country. And they're seeing what's going to happen with marriage equality, and they're trying to sort of uh, uh, reclaim some territory. And it's, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But there's a lot of, usually at the legislative level, just below the surface, real vitriol that's still, that's still there um, about LGBT rights issues. And this has become sort of the second order concern that we see. Yeah. I wanted to uh, make a comment in relation. Thanks. All of you have been wonderful. This, is, this has been really, really, really great. Um, um, Ken was saying, you know, unsung heroes, and you know, geography really matters, and we live in a metropolitan area, and, and I hear you on that. But I will also say that I, I simply know for a fact that we are on um, a Catholic campus where my 20-somethings and you know, teenage students do, are not all comfortable being out. Absolutely. And so we also have, we have people right here, you know, who live in dorms on our campus who don't feel comfortable about that. And I was also really struck by your story about the, you know, your decision, you know, your and decision to want to be married in Christ Church and doing that, and the combination of the legal and the spiritual kind of celebration, and the way that the bishop said, stopped Kate from saying, you know, the priest was going to marry you, stop, and said, I don't want to hear anymore, um, you know, don't ask me a question you don't want to know the answer to. And then Father Joe, sorry, I'm pushing this bottle over here. But you said that bishops are supposed to help us, you know, they're, you know our conscience is first, right? Mm -hmm. So if bishops are supposed to help us. And I just, in both of those cases, I feel kind of frustrated by an institution that is supposed to be caring, um, but not, is so slow to kind of move. Um, and anyway, I just, uh, it was kind of striking. <coughs> mm -hmm. That's all power in politics more than it is the issues that we're talking about. And if you go fight against the power structure and you're not the most powerful one, you lose. So then all those people you're trying to help in the in-between zone, <clears throat> you're not available to them. That's kind of where many of us find ourselves. And our students somewhat feel that. And we do have a group on campus for students that don't feel comfortable being out uh, called Oasis. Um, but we know there's many more than take advantage of that. Um, and then the, sometimes they stay in Oasis even though they do become comfortable. But that's good because then the newer ones that come along, they kind of mention them to feel comfortable as well. And then they become more a part of uh, panels and discussions and things like that. It's amazing. Some freshmen come in all real scared and they leave, you know, giving talks on the LBGT issues, and why they are the way they are. I, you know, uh, and interestingly, um, when, at, after Kate married us, um, we then had to, one of our, uh, in the Episcopal Church, 
the board of the church is called the vestry. And Jean was on the vestry at the time, and I'm on the vestry of our church. And one of our vestry members is a federal judge. And he wanted to bring this issue up to the vestry. I don't know what he thought the vestry was going to do about it, whether he was going to undo it or whatever. But So he made this impassioned spiel, for lack of a better term. Um, he's a lovely man, but he was dead wrong on this. Mm-hmm. And so after he finished, we went around. The, our rector said, let's go around the room and let every vestry member respond. And every person on that vestry, I think there are, what, 15 of us? Well, uh, maybe more, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, probably 12. Yeah, 12. 12 disciples, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but every single person said, uh, way to go. Great Kate, great Ken. And you, you have no idea how awful it is to sit in a meeting where your name is on the agenda uh, in a place that I thought was so progressive, but to then to be ratified that it really is a, a progressive place. And the, the other thing I want to say is that regarding the bishop, after Kate did this, Kate had to turn herself in to the bishop because she, she actually broke canon law, and so she had to turn herself in. So she wrote a letter to the bishop, hand-delivered it, and then called and said, did you get my letter? And he said, yes, I put it in the file. And she said, it's in my personnel file? And he said, it's in a different file. And I think what he meant was he put it in the trash. Um, and so I think even though he doesn't have the power to help us change, he has the power to, he had the power to help us move forward. And the Episcopal Church spent five years coming up with this goofy document, thinking that this would shut us up um, if you just let him get pretend married. Um, and nobody's using it. They're just not using it anywhere. You know, one of the things that, that, and I think this sort of maybe follows up on your point, I've spoken to this, uh, this woman that I know who got married after years of not being able to and said she was really surprised at how much the legal marriage moved her said, in a way that she didn't think that it would. And she said, just the idea that the state actually recognized us as a couple after all this time, she said, I don't really think of the law. She, you would think of the solemnization, the, the, the church or mosque, whatever your spiritual thing is, would be the thing that would do that. But she was, she was really, she had this unexpected moment of being moved by, this, by the states doing this. And I'm just wondering if you felt that way at all? Yeah, so actually, that's. I'm glad you raised that because I wanted to respond to some of the stuff that you were talking about. Um, so um, I we went into getting married with some hesitation. Mm-hmm. We actually eloped um, under mm-hmm. some duress, which was that I was adjuncting at the time, and I had no, as a part-time employee, I had no access to health benefits. And when we looked at the cost of me purchasing health insurance, on my own, it was you know basically my entire salary as an adjunct was going to mm-hmm. go to health insurance. So, um, and at the time, um, Kara was a Massachusetts state worker. She worked for University of Massachusetts, and um, 
once the, the, the legalization of same-sex marriage went into effect, Mitt Romney basically, the governor at the time, said, well, we're going to do away with domestic partner benefits for all state workers. So if you're a gay or lesbian couple, basically you have to get married. So did you, you have want. benefits until that point? No, no. Okay. I, I, well, I had graduate student benefits, and then they stopped because I, I okay. completed it. my PhD. Right. And then at that point, it was sort of, you okay. know, had nothing. Adrift. Adrift, yes, which, which does happen. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I think less so now. But um, at the time, that was the, the right. case. So. Um, so we basically got married on a very snowy Thursday in Massachusetts, which is like not really a time when many, most people choose to get married. It was, um, and we, we eloped, we got married, um, in part because I had, we both had real misgivings about it from our political viewpoint along the lines that you were, you raised, I think very eloquently, um, around thinking about marriage as this heteronormative institution and so on and so forth. And yes, it's legal, but that's not the kind of you know lesbians that we are. We're not going to do that. <laughs> We're going to rally for universal health insurance instead, right. and that's really our cause. Um, but it was very interesting because we got married, um, went out to dinner, had a little celebration, and the waiter you know brought us some champagne, which was nice, and um, went home. And um, it was interesting the the effect that that had because I, I do remember having this feeling of. You know, I remember. I think it was probably calling a health insurance, you know, employee or something in Boston to to register for health insurance, and um, just feeling really empowered that I had this um, this sort of legal framework that it wasn't just me saying. So, um, you know, as you were talking about, so it's like we're actually same sex couple, and what do you think about that? But there is a sense of this again having this sort of the, the law behind us. You know that there had been this whole sort of public discourse about it. There had been a determination by the state supreme court of Massachusetts saying yes, you are legally married. That felt very, for lack of a better word, it felt very empowering. And um, I did not anticipate having that feeling. And it was interesting moving to Pennsylvania and feeling that. You're essentially evaporate. The yeah. battery drain, the power battery draining. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in, when you were talking about, so we're in this metropolitan area, and this is so great, and it's true. I mean, there is this sense. I live in Mount Airy also, and that's a very easy place to live when you're when you're gay. Um, and, and you know, we sort of choose who we interact with. Almost in terms too of, easy. No, it's it's almost too easy, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's you the know, gay zip code. Right, right. And I mean, we're very fortunate in terms of our employers, in terms of our, you know, where we live, where our son is in school, and so forth. So, I, And I think we've, we've been very fortunate to be able to have some control and have the resources to be able to make those choices uh, about how we interact with the world, right? Um, but, you know, that's true that, that we all have to deal with, you know, any number of bureaucrats in terms of dealing with the things that life spins out. And, um, and, and I think that that's where, again, living in Pennsylvania feels very different that I think, and there is that kind of sense of how are you going to react to this and, you know, not having that protection that, that I think, um, the protection of our relationship that I think we, we did experience in Massachusetts. So, I just want to make a quick comment. Um, I talk about the heroes. Um, I personally, you know, I was moved by the, the religious um, um, ceremony more than I thought it would be. But the real time I was moved was when we went to when we went to Norristown, we went to Montgomery County, and these these people, it was like any, we were any other person in the world walking in, very matter of factly asking the questions. They hadn't complete the form still said um, male, female, or husband and wife, and he said, well, I've changed this. But these are, these are real heroes, too, because they receive so much um, um, 
uh, press coverage and publicity. I mean, there were, when this first happened, there were cameras, and they had to walk through all these, these news things. And, and I thought, these people are really, really wonderful people. They're just going in and doing their job, but they're receiving all this, this publicity. And I walked out of there so proud of those people because they're the ones, the unnamed people, right. like the secretaries, the clerks, that are doing something that is, that is really, you know, really monumental. You know, interestingly, we had to walk through a metal detector to get into the, to the register of Will's office. Well, you're dangerous people. It was right out, <laughs> it was right outside the door, and it was really to keep people who were crazy, uh -oh. uh, because they were fearful. Mm -hmm. Oh, people, It was right outside the door to the clerk of Will's office, and um, it, I, to me, uh, that was shocking, but uh, real. If there are any other questions, we'll take them. Yeah. So, so it's 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 so that's a, that's a, a sort of a fastball right down the middle for a law professor, right? Mm -hmm. Or for any, I think for anybody on the panel, mm -hmm. because it there's it, it's not really responsive, right? Mm -hmm. It's 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 about what the state is doing. Now that isn't to say that there aren't arguments against marriage equality, which we could we could have, right? But to say that whatever the Bible says, I mean. It's one thing to say you have the right to express and practice your religion. It's another thing to say that because of this particular worldview that the state should be disqualifying an entire class of people on religious principles. That really is an establishment of religion problem. That is, is the best response. Now, people's views can be informed by that. That could be their reason for being against the idea of it. But it's not a good argument against the state's recognition of it. That's how I would respond to that. Can I mean, I, okay. my whole thing with that is it always sort of blows my mind because, fine, I understand that there are a multitude of religions that prohibit gay marriage. Um, but if I'm Jewish, I also can't go into a Catholic church and get married. If I'm not a member of that parish, I may not be able to get married. They have the right to not give me that spiritual ceremony. That has nothing to do with the legalities of it, like nothing at all. Um, and honestly, I, I don't think, um, or I would say there's a fair number of sort of gay folks that wouldn't want to get married in a religion that doesn't accept them. You know, I'll go to a religion that will. I'm fine with that. So it's just one of those arguments that, okay, that's good for you, but I'm not asking you to marry me. I'm asking the state to do this. Yeah, the um, other thing that, that, yeah. that occurs to me is you want religion to be respected. And the problem with the argument that they're making or the point that they're making is that there are lots of religions and lots of views, and some religions are in favor of same-sex marriages, mm -hmm. and some are opposed to it. And if you really want to respect religious belief in the broadest sense of the word, right, then the state shouldn't get involved in choosing sides in favor of one religion or the other, unless there's a separate secular reason for doing it, which are, again, are the things we could debate. But this idea that the state should be choosing one religious belief over others really is, in a broader sense, disrespecting religion, period. That's, that's how I look at it. Mm -hmm. 
I'd love to hear Father's uh, response to the Genesis thing. uh, I couldn't hear it all. Can can somebody, because I have a bad ear. Uh, You said they quote Genesis often. Oh, why did they quote Genesis? Okay, that was written way back in the time in a patriarchal society. It's also a literary book as well as an inspirational book, the Bible. So biblical scholars use all those tools of literary form and historical criticism. So once you go back into context, when they wrote it, why they wrote it, all like that, it would make sense. They would, they would write a uh, male-female story. But if the culture was more same-sex friendly, they probably would have written the same, you know, Adam and Steve instead of Adam and Eve. <laughs> so if they didn't, that, that's just a circumstance of history, I think, and, you know, culture when it was, when it came forth. Yeah, and by those same arguments, you could easily say that, you know, the Catholic Church should allow incestuous relationships, because, you know, early Bible books, they're they're big fans of that one. And polygamy is all over the place. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've just been told, and I I think we need to stop, so I would really like to thank my fellow panelists, and and, uh, it's been a great Thank you. Yeah. It was great to meet you. It was wonderful to meet you.